Right, thanks very much for the, for the kind introduction. This is uh, a project that is brand new and in this form has never been presented anywhere before. Mm -hmm. So all of your colleagues who think they have more important things to do <laughs> at this time of the day are seriously, are seriously missing out. This is currently under review at the uh, uh, European Journal of International Law. Um, who liked the angle, the, the, I had another version before that was more focused on history and they said, is there any use to this? Is there any sort of contemporary application? Or in other words, why should we know all this stuff? And um, just to tie in with the more general point of people missing out on something interesting and important, uh, my argument is that there is quite a lot of early history of international criminal law that most specialists in international criminal law are not aware of. And I'm going to present you some examples uh, this evening. Um, but first of all, what is an international commission of inquiry? Uh, some of you might know that they are mentioned in the uh, 1899 Hague Convention on the Pacific Settlement of Disputes, where their mandate is limited to a statement of facts. They are a pure fact-finding body. And unlike arbitration awards, their final reports are technically non-binding. Yeah. Um, in addition to the 1899 and 1907 Hague Conventions, um, they are also included as an option both in the League of Nations Covenant and in the United Nations Charter, uh, in both cases as fact-finding bodies. So what on earth could be controversial about a fact-finding body with non-binding powers? Well, some commissions did make history. For example, the 1932 Lytton Report on Manchuria that led to Japan leaving the League of Nations. That was technically a commission of inquiry under the League of Nations. But most of them really remained on the fringes of international politics. That has changed quite dramatically in recent years with the new uh, UN Human Rights Commission, so UN Human Rights Council that replaced the Human Rights Commission. Um, it has, since 2006, it has become a prolific user of commissions of inquiry and it has begun to task them with, explicitly, with investigating crimes against humanity. And Commissions of inquiry set up by the UN Secretary General or um, the Security Council and in the latest case even the African Union have started doing the same thing. So critics fear that a pluralization of international criminal law might be a dangerous thing. It might undermine the ICC because it opens up opportunities for forum shopping. It might undermine the ICC because already some commissions of inquiry have interpreted important principles of international criminal law differently to the Rome Statute. So they're not directly bound by it. So if, for example, the Rome Statute is particularly tight on the requirements of um, an organization involved in a conflict and whether international humanitarian law can be applied to them and whether they're bound by it, that doesn't mean a commission of inquiry has to see it the same way. And that has happened already, and some people argue that's not a great thing. Um, there were even, on one occasion, two competing commissions of inquiry within the UN system, reflecting the Geneva-New York dynamic regarding the Middle Eastern conflict. So we had one sent by the um, Secretary General 
to uh, us once sent by the Security Council to look at uh, the Gaza blockade and the violence regarding the, the boarding of this particular Turkish vessel, um, and a competing one sent by the Human Rights Council, and both coming to different conclusions, for example, on the point, was the blockade legal, <laughs> or does international humanitarian law apply? Um, crucially, and that's the overall argument of the critics, commissions of inquiry that are investigating war crimes are completely outside their mandate coming from the Hague tradition as non-binding um, fact-finding reporters. Other scholars, however, think this is a positive development, and this is, um, uh, to use Philip Alstom's face, the criminalization of fact-finding or the push for accountability. Uh, they argue that the ICC is only there for the most serious crimes, and was never meant to solve every single incident of war crimes happening in, in human conflict on, the, on Earth. Um, they also argue that the ICC actually gave its blessing to this development by citing the Commission of Inquiry investigating Darfur and their report as evidence that a genocide had actually occurred, and that persuaded them to include the crime of genocide in the indictment in the Bashir case. And so the proponents argue that commissions of inquiry are inherently flexible tools. And once they are given safeguards to ensure that there's a fair trial, um, they are actually valuable institutions. These safeguards, by the way, are necessary because commissions of inquiry have begun to establish lists of possible perpetrators that are included in the final report and then reported back to, say, the African Union or the Human Rights Council. And, um, they have decided to treat these lists with confidentiality, but that is their decision. There is one case in the Sri Lanka panel of experts where they made the list public, which you can argue poses some questions on the question of fair trial. So where are we now in this debate? And that's quite interesting that in about 2012, the critics really were in the ascendancy, but um, International politics has basically ignored the criticism and went on regardless with more commissions of inquiry. So international legal scholars have adapted. And Carsten Stahn, who is one of the co-editors of uh, an important volume on fragmentation of international law and uh, international criminal law and its dangers, in his latest work, he seems to have accepted that they are here to stay and is now making suggestions what standards they should fulfill so that the ICC can use their findings without raising too many problems. But the critics still complain that this is an unregulated area outside their actual mandate and their actual tradition. Um, others think they should be developed even more as an alternative to the ICC, arguing that Antonio Cassese himself pointed towards international commissions of inquiry as a possible future area for the development of international criminal law. Now, the main question I want to pose today is, is this really new? Is this really a new kind of activist, human rights-driven, rabble-rousing uh, commission of inquiry that is a step aside from the rather sober fact-finding past? Or is it something that was apparent at the very earliest development of international criminal law 
and has successfully been put back like a genie into the bottle at the Hague Conventions. And so that, in a way, what happened since the late 1990s is a return to something that would be very familiar for uh, lawyers operating in the pre-World War I period. And to make this even more relevant, I argue that one specific type of commission of inquiry invented in 1905 is the only viable model for any form of court or tribunal in the current international environment that could successfully investigate uh, the MH17 tribunal. So the first example, and this is going to be a very brief one, is the Sassoon Commission of 1895, which I doubt anyone here has ever heard of. Um, it is technically an Ottoman Empire Commission of Inquiry investigating alleged massacres against uh, Armenians. But under international pressure, it included uh, members from lawyers from Britain, France, and Russia. And these three international members completely changed the agenda. They started by deposing a local governor who they said was implicated in the events. And they forced the commission to investigate alleged massacre sites in one occasion by simply getting on their horses and riding out in the morning, forcing the Turkish commissioners to either ride after them or look very foolish indeed. Um, even though it is quite clear that the Turkish mandate was to turn this into a whitewash and show that it was all the fault of Armenian revolutionaries and nothing untoward happened. And these commissioners found mass graves, took numerous very detailed uh, witness statements, and thereby established an alternative report that was then sent to, to the European capitals that completely challenged the Ottoman account based on rock-solid primary evidence. And this wasn't an easy thing to do, just to let show you here. Um, the usual way of Western powers projecting power on the Ottoman Empire would be along the coast, where it's easily reachable by gunboat. But in the 1890s, the possibilities of projecting powers in this area, I mean, we're just north of what would later become the Iraqi border. Iraq doesn't exist at this point. Um, power projection in this area is really difficult. So it's quite interesting that we have three international commissioners operating in this area um, under international pressure. So if you actually look at the report, the most striking thing is that it reads like a very modern human rights report. So these people would very clearly recognize the tension of modern human rights reporting between the need to get the message out quickly, to have maximum political impact, and the need to corroborate evidence and double-check everything to make sure that it would stand up in court. And these people tried to do both in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. And the most striking feature of this report is detailed tables linking particular victims, the alleged perpetrators who have committed sad crimes, who led which Turkish militia, the witness statements and the page numbers of the witness statements implicating the perpetrators in the case and another box for comments. Now, I ask you, why would you do that? The only intention can have been to prepare some kind of criminal prosecution, which the Ottoman authorities then declined to do, but it's quite interesting that this is the lawyer's instinct. This is what you do in those circumstances if you are the only force on the ground, even though they must have known perfectly well 
that the chances of prosecution were fairly slim indeed. Yeah? But just using this table, it is still possible today, with, with minimum effort, to link a particular crime to a particular Kurdish militia and its leader, and on what day the crime might have been committed. Um, after the, they submit their report, they even start their own witness protection program, using international pressure on the Ottoman Empire to make sure that people who, are, uh, who gave statements to this commission are not punished for it afterwards. Uh, and they have lists of names and consular offices to make sure these people are well. Um, they start organizing relief efforts for uh, those Armenians left destitute and try to organize international aid. And they even seek measures to prevent further violence by trying to make sure that the Ottoman Empire enacts a law banning Kurdish militias from entering these areas in the summer to prevent uh, the constellation that had caused the violence in, in 1894. And this is starting to look very, very modern indeed in its thinking. Yeah? This is not very far away from how we would think about a similar atrocity and what should be done about it. And this can be described as a forgotten report of no consequence whatsoever if you just look at the prosecutions and what the Turkish side thought of it. The important thing about this report is that it shapes the perception in Western capitals. Just a second. Can you just tell me the name of the report? Hmm? Can you just tell me the name again? Um, I can send you the PDF. Okay. Yeah, I just want to write it down. Yeah, it's, it's basically the, the problem is there's different spellings of Sassoon <laughs> uh, throughout the report. Um, but I can, I can give you detailed uh, uh, citations. It's a, it's a parliamentary paper, so you can download it as a PDF. Um, and this shaped the perception in Western capitals that these rumors of violence against Armenians are not just one militia deep, deep in Anatolia doing something to another militia deep, deep in Anatolia, but that this is a state-organized extermination effort against the Armenian minority. And this, in turn, shapes the response to later incidents most notably the very early beginnings of what we now call the Armenian Genocide. So when, for example, only three weeks after what we now call the Armenian Genocide in 1915 in April, when it begins, three weeks later it's again Britain, France and Russia sending a joint note um, describing this as a crime against humanity, which as you might know is the true or is the origin of the phrase crime against humanity in its international criminal law sense. And so this is the intellectual origin of what we now know as crimes against humanity. And it was a commission of inquiry in the thick of it. Now to my second and somewhat longer example, because that is the one that might be more relevant for, for MH17. Um, and it is something that was a very important political issue in its day and something that people at the time thought might very well have brought Russia and Britain into war. And these events happened in the context of the Russo-Japanese War, which was caused by imperial competition over Manchuria and Korea. And what happens is that the Japanese blockade the Russian Pacific Squadron in Port Arthur and besiege the town. And the Russians then decide that the best way to beat this Japanese fleet 
is to take the modern Russian Baltic fleet from St. Petersburg and send it into Japanese waters. Um, Britain, however, in this conflict was in a very difficult situation because in 1902 it had concluded an alliance with Japan. So this was a charged situation in any case. And now the Baltic Squadron takes on what would become the longest ever voyage of a coal-powered squadron. And the problem was that some of the ships were brand new and the crews were untrained. And the other thing that really was on their minds was that um, there were rumors swirling around of a Japanese torpedo boat attack, that either the Japanese had brought torpedo boats all the way to the North Sea, or that they had bought second-hand torpedo boats from Denmark or, some, or the Netherlands or somewhere else, and were just waiting to pounce and attack the squadron the moment it entered the North Sea and left the Baltic. And now, what happened on 21st October 1904 is that the squadron believes this moment has come and they have spotted the torpedo boats and they start firing with all their guns on these vessels. And it's only too late that they realize that what they're firing at is the Hull fishing fleet on a nightly fishing excursion. And the firing is sustained for about 15 minutes and they sink one vessel, severely damaged four others, kill three fishermen and injure five more, some severely with loss of limbs and so on. And when just to give you an idea of where we are geographically. So this is the exit of the Baltic, and this is a sandbank, which is, and is still a very fertile fishing ground. So this is where the whole fishing fleet would go every night. And once the squadron cruises through, um, under the command of, of this gentleman, uh, Admiral Rojestvensky, um, there was a clear danger that there would be contact and because he had given an order ordering his, his gunners to shoot on sight, uh, it was almost inevitable. Now, once the shipping fleet limps back into port and the news is telegraphed to London, people are incredulous. They refuse to believe that the Russian, that the most modern squadron of the Russian Navy has just killed uh, English fishermen. And uh, angry mobs attack the Russian ambassador, the press calls for war, and the public is particularly stunned that the Russian fleet left the scene without providing any form of assistance or informing anyone. And in the words of the, of the foreign secretary, they are quite sure that this might have been a deliberate act, and if it was not deliberate, it was, quote, the most culpable negligence. Now, to resolve this dispute, um, the, uh, the uh, British ambassador in St. Petersburg suggests an immediate Russian declaration that the culpable should be punished and that reparation will be paid. And what they want at this point is a Russian commitment that there will be a Russian inquiry where British evidence will be allowed. Um, Russia agrees, but does not formally commit, saying we first need to await the report of our admiral before we make any firm commitments. Britain, however, insists that the officers responsible must leave ship at the fleet's stopover in Vigo, and otherwise the fleet will be blockaded and prevented from leaving the port, which is quite significant because that's technically an act of war.
On 27th October, the Admiral's account comes in, and he claims that he was actually attacked by two enemy torpedo boats, and that the fishing fleet was only discovered in the chaotic context of the shelling of these two torpedo boats. Now, when the, um, when the British ambassador in St. Petersburg raises the argument that the admiral might be quite mistaken here, the uh, Russian foreign secretary gets very angry and says that the word of a Russian admiral must always be of greater value than the testimony of panic-struck and fishermen. And it's at this point that Britain realizes that the idea of a Russian inquiry with British evidence maybe was not the best one. So they immediately come up with the idea of an international inquiry. The problem is there is no real model for an international inquiry. So it's quite interesting to see this. This is in, in draft form as it's put into a telegram, the very first expression of the idea. This is brainstorming in diplomatic correspondence. And what he suggests is a hybrid of um, a commission of inquiry as specified in the 1899 Hague Convention and what is effectively a court-martial. Naval admirals, uh, naval officers looking at the misdeeds of other naval officers. And he suggests merging that into one body. Now the problem for the Russians is that uh, they cannot really accept that they are shown to be forced into accepting this. So their only condition is that for you know, public consumption this is presented as the Tsar's proposal which everyone is, is happy to, to agree with as long as it's the same proposal. And um, so the news becomes known on Monday, and on Friday we have this public meeting of the National Conservative Union um, with the Prime Minister expected to announce war or explain that ways have been found to preserve the peace. So there were great cheers about this idea of a new commission that would preserve the peace. Um, now, in Vigo, negotiations are going on because the British are adamant that the fleet will only be allowed to leave if they not only drop off four officers deemed responsible, but also explicitly accept that this commission, quote, should be authorized to apportion responsibility and blame. And the idea now is for the punishment to be fixed by the Russian side, but the question of individual guilt to be decided by the inquiry. So, in the first draft, it becomes ever clearer that they are blending um, a court-martial with a classic commission of inquiry, and they have some interesting features. One of it is decisions are taken by majority vote. There is no formal veto. And all evidence is open to challenge in an adversarial format. So. This is not just uh, an, um, an inquiry where five experts sit down and look at evidence and organize it themselves. These are formal sessions where witnesses are examined and cross-examined and can be recalled and can be confronted with other evidence provided by other expert witnesses. And now the mandate is quite clear that the commission should look particularly where the responsibility lies and the degree of blame. So this is the main focus of this commission. Now, this raises the question, if we're going into individual guilt, who is actually the defendant?
And here, Russia succeeds in consistently describing the four officers as witnesses, even though Britain would really like to, blame the, to, claim, to claim they were defendants. The tribunal goes along with the Russian line and hears them as witnesses. This might have been a British diplomatic defeat, but it turned out to be a real legal advantage because it soon turned out that all relevant orders had been given by the admiral himself. And it would have been quite impossible for Russia to have the admiral taken off his squadron and put in front of a commission in Paris. So what we have here is we have him effectively tried in absentia and we evade the superior orders defense which marred so many early war crime investigations and tribunals. So here's a picture of, of one of its sessions taking place in Paris in the Quai uh, d'Orsay in the French Foreign Ministry, which is visible here in the background where we have a delegation of Hull fishermen giving evidence uh, in front quite to the amusement of uh, Paris high society, by the way. Now, the real question from a lawyer's point of view is what legal points were raised in the inquiry. And that's where it gets rather interesting because they conduct a proportionality test. Um, was excessive force used? Always considering that this squadron was a squadron on a war footing. This was not a peaceful passage. They thought they could be attacked at any time. And even though they conclude that the intelligence facing the admiral was flawed, he had to be prepared. There was no way he could dismiss all these reports. And so his order to shoot on sight was in the end considered justified. Now, that leads to the problem of the actual firing. Why on earth did the Russians start firing? What did they see in this, uh, in this uh, cloudy but not foggy night? And that opened a whole can of worms exposing that it is actually exceedingly difficult to see, to identify any form of ship at night during naval operations. And that it is also exceedingly difficult to communicate clearly from one vessel to the other. In, and we have to remember this is the time of the naval arms race when public emotions are stirred up to uh, support ever higher budgets for naval building. So these are two issues that are not really talked about. Mm -hmm. But here suddenly they have to be talked about because the question has to be explained, why did the officers think they saw torpedo boats and sunk fishing vessels? Um, in the end, it is decided that um, there is no justification for opening the firing, but there is also no mens rea, there is no intent to deliberately target the fishing boats because the Russians think they're firing at some, something else, even though they should have been more careful in their target selection. The second point is the decision to leave after they realize they have attacked a fleet of civilian vessels. And here, once again, they accept the excuse that the squadron was on a war footing and that they considered this to be dangerous waters where they were exposed to attack at any time. Um, but the Commission quite cleverly established a new duty that in a situation like this, squadron commanders are bound to inform local authorities by wireless radio about potential victims and where to find them and how to help them. And it has to be borne in mind that this technology at this point is about four years old. 
in the use by, by major navies. So they can't rely on precedent. Um, they build this principle on common sense and establish this duty to assist. Um, by the way, the committee is also, I think, the very first that uses secret uh, wireless taps as evidence because the, uh, the British Naval Intelligence Office has intercepted all Russian wireless communication and provided transcripts to the committee that played quite a role in, um, in establishing what happened, which is quite an interesting point when it comes to an inquiry that will be, if it ever happens, the first one to really look at social media posts as evidence. Uh, the first one I'm aware of when the best trail we have towards culpability comes from deleted uh, uh, social media posts on a Russian platform. On 25th of February 1905, the verdict is pronounced and the decision to order the shelling is directly attributed to the commanding admiral and it is declared as non -justi not justifiable since no torpedo boats were present in the area. They um, make the statement based on declarations by every North Sea state confirming that there were no torpedo boats in the area, and by the way, by Japan. Um, and they rely on the wireless transcripts provided by British Naval Intelligence and conclude that what they were actually firing at were their own cruisers, Aurora and Donskoy, which had come off course and then approached them through the clouds from an uh, unexpected angle. And um, as an aside, if we have time, one of the ways they established that is um, they found a witness from the Donskoy who had left ship in Tangier because his mission as the ship's musician was over and he didn't want to go further. He had trained the orchestra and he wanted to stay in Europe. And British naval intelligence had found this guy. <laughs> and they brought him from Tangier to London to take his witness statement. And his statement that... Uh, there were quite a number of shells landing on the Donskoy with Kyrillic writing on it. it. was quite important in the trial, even though that was not mentioned in the final report to spare the blushes of, of the Russian side. Um, so they conclude, in the absence of an intent to harm the fishermen, there is no individual guilt in the criminal sense, but the negligence apparent here has caused a duty of compensation. Now, at this point, it's the, the Russian delegate applies some pressure and says, I will not sign this unless you um, include a special declaration declaring that, quote, the findings are not of a nature to cast any discredit upon the military qualities or the humanity of the admiral and his crew. Now, this sentence stuck out of the report like a sore thumb. And if you ever wondered why there is a special rule in the 1907 Hague Conventions on the settlement of the Pacific Settlement of Disputes that says that reports remain valid even if they're not signed by all commissioners, that goes straight back to this dispute because this little procedural rule wasn't clarified at the time, so they felt compelled to include this to make sure the Russian delegate signs. The press reaction, however, is quite interesting because they all of them raise this honor statement as something looking distinctly odd and the language they use is quite clearly criminal law language. They say the firing not justified, he's been found guilty but with extenuating circumstances 
and the like. This is clearly criminal law language, and this is, this is something that was perceived as a criminal law tribunal at the time. So in the end, Russia pays £60,000 in compensation to the Hull fishermen. Um, Rosjesvensky continued on his way to the Far East, was wounded in the Battle of Tsushima, where the Japanese sunk the entire Baltic fleet. Ironically, his flagship is sunk by a Japanese torpedo boat. Um, one vessel that escapes is the Aurora that caused the whole incident early on. And uh, some of you might have heard of that vessel before. It is the precise vessel that fires the opening shots of the uh, October Revolution in 1917 and is a firm part of, um, of the uh, mythology of the Bolshevik Revolution. And therefore, the Aurora is actually the only museum ship maintained by the Russian Navy, um, although that part of its history is never mentioned. Crucially, and that is where uh, a point that I've tried to make ever so subtle in the article. From a Russian point of view, this was all highly embarrassing. Um, but it prevented the escalation of a conflict that could have turned into war with Britain, which given that they lost the war to Japan, they would certainly have lost. Instead, the communication here, brokered by the French as well, um, starts the process of rapprochement, which is why the Germans try to uh, interrupt this process and try to uh, work against this tribunal. But what happens is that two years later, in 1907, um, we have an alliance between Russia and France, and we have an approach, an rapprochement, uh, with the Entente Cordiale, the alliance between Britain and, um, and France. And so this triggers the diplomatic development that would make sure that for all their differences um, in terms of the nature of government, these two countries would fight the First World War on the same side. Yeah? And this is the precise moment when uh, this development began and sort of it worked as a sort of trust, confidence-building measure diplomatically. Now, you might ask yourself, if it was so important and celebrated at the time, why is it highly unlikely that any one of you will have heard of the North Sea Incident 1905 ever before? Now, the reason for that is that at the Hague Conventions, when the idea was brought up by the Russian delegate that the role of commissions of inquiry should be extended and the restriction and it, not to look at manners of matters of national honor should be dropped, and that the incident had shown that there's so much more potential in commissions of inquiry, particular, particularly regarding international criminal law. Um, at that point, the delegates feared that if we really accept this idea, international tribunal, national punishment, there was a, a long, long articles in, in, in the leading law journals of the time devote much space to the question whether this should be the model on which to build something approaching international criminal law. They thought this is only one step away from an international criminal court, which nobody wanted at that time. And so the Russian suggestion is stopped, and they take some procedural rules from the uh, um, 
North Sea Incident Tribunal without attributing it. Um, they keep all the restrictions in place to make sure that it's just a fact-finding body and they desperately try to put the genie back into the bottle. So if people write papers in 2015, 2016 and saying if there's a human rights criminal law element in a commission of inquiry that is outside the Hague tradition, it's true, but it's also not true at all. It is something that was deliberately kept out of the Hague tradition, even though it was there quite manifestly at the time. Now, what happened to the big prestigious foreign policy success of the North Sea Incident Commission? That was grabbed by the arbitration lobby, which was extremely strong at the time, but didn't really like commissions of inquiry because they felt the biggest advantage of arbitration is that arbitral awards are binding. So if we empower commissions of inquiry, yeah, then we endanger that. Yeah, and that is not a good thing for the arbitration movement, where at that time there were high hopes that this would be the route to an end to war. Yeah. So in the most extreme case I found, um, Randall Kramer, uh, Randall Kramer is a British arbitration activist who is awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his fight for arbitration. So he gives a speech in Oslo accepting the Nobel Peace Prize and tells the audience that this is the golden age of arbitration and especially now that with the, no with the peaceful resolution of the North Sea incident the, court, the new court of international arbitration in The Hague had scored its first major success. And that statement is reprinted unchanged in um, Mark Mazower's 2012 book, Governing the World. Even though everyone in the audience must have known, if they were reading their newspapers at the time, that this was actually a commission of inquiry sitting in Paris. Yeah. And so you will find in arbitration textbooks that this is again and again referred to as an early arbitration even though it's not an arbitration at all. Yeah. So they want the success, and they kind of trust that lawyers will overlook this, sort of accept that arbitration has a proud history, and never ever look up the original documents and find out what actually went on. And my whole argument is that it might be a useful thing to do that from time to time, because not everything a contemporary law textbook tells you is actually true. So, in the end, all that was left is a rather mediocre memorial next to some of Hull's finer council housing. Um, and what could be a viable model for uh, MH17 is actually hidden here in the events surrounding the death of, of these fishermen. Um, it was, however, not the only commission of inquiry with an explicitly adversarial format. This format where evidence and witnesses are examined, checked, and cross-examined was used a couple of times in incidents that are not nearly as well known or were not nearly as prominent at the time than the um, uh, North Sea incident. So the Tabantia case was about whether or not a German U-boat had torpedoed a Dutch merchant vessel during the First World War. 
Um, Germany denied this. The Commission of Inquiry in the end decided that uh, the Netherlands were due compensation. The Red Crusader case is about fishing rights outside the Faroe Islands um, and is about um, the Danish authorities boarding uh, a British vessel. And interestingly enough, even though the mandate was extremely restricted, uh, the Commission could not help itself but explore matters of criminal responsibility uh, and actually end up condemning condemning the, uh, the firing of the Danish Navy at this civilian British vessel, even though it was trying to evade capture, arguing that in peacetime this isn't really on. So again, there's this tendency to move into matters of, of criminal law. Overall, it is a format that has shown itself to be very useful in disputes about individual single incidents, which revolve around highly specialized technical evidence in particular questions regarding precise geographic location and the responsibility for the use of force against civilian vessels. So, this is precisely the kind of thing that we are very, very interested in regarding the uh, downing of MH17 and that we are unlikely to find out unless there is a tribunal looking at all the evidence. Now, why should Russia agree to my bright idea and allow this tribunal to be set up. And um, the reason I'm putting forward ever so subtly in the paper is that if it has worked well and brought major diplomatic gains for Russia in 1905, it might work equally well in 2016 at a time when Russia is also thinking about ending its rather unwelcome international isolation and that this might be a face-saving step forward, particularly as this suggestion would deal with every single objection that Russia has raised when it used its veto in July 2015 against the draft resolution by the Security Council for a tribunal uh, looking at uh, MH17. Unlike that draft resolution, there would be no need to invoke Chapter 7. Russia was quite taken aback that this single incident was taken to be uh, uh, a danger to peace. And um, it is also, unlike the draft resolution proposed by the Security Council, not modeled on the International Tribun Criminal Tribunal in Yugoslavia, which the Russian side argue would have made it particularly cumbersome, expensive, drawn out, um, and there's also the hint, the hint of bias. Uh, the hint of bias in here, uh, because Russia, of course, perceives the uh, Yugoslav tribunal to be on the side of the uh, Croatians rather than the Serbs. Finally, um, Russia would have access to all evidence because it would be a party in this commission. And this format would also, as in 1905, allow for the sharing of intelligence data, of wiretaps, of uh, satellite data that perhaps neither side really wants to hand out at a press briefing. But if you have a commission like that, you have some form of assurance that confidential files remain confidential. Um, it certainly was the case in the, um, in the case of the North Sea incident. I mean, for example, the, the decisive role of the wiretaps 
from in my research only emerged once I got down to the files of the Naval Intelligence Service. If you look at the report, you have no idea that they're using uh, Secret Service evidence. Final advantage is because of this open format that just, uh, just says let's look at the evidence and see who might be responsible, there is no need to come up with specific suspects, which in any international criminal tribunal the starting point would be who is the defendant, who is the suspect, and then we build our case against him or exonerate him. In this format, the overall question is more what happened? And the secondary question, who might be responsible and therefore to blame? And this is why I argue that it is worth looking into the very earliest history of international criminal law and adopting a format that has been very rarely used and never ever again so prominently, but that in this particular case might be the one avenue out um, that could be a breakthrough in international politics and might be a possible route towards justice for the victims of the downing of flight MH17. Thank you very much.